reading is from Joshua 6, 1 through 10. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus shall you do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. So Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Go forward, march around the city, and let the armed men pass on before the Ark of the Lord. And just as Joshua had commanded the people, the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward, blowing the trumpets with the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord following them. The armed men were walking before the priests who were blowing the trumpets, and the rear guard was walking after the ark while the trumpets blew continually. But Joshua commanded the people, You shall not shout or make your voice heard, neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day I tell you to shout. Then you shall shout. This is the word of the Lord. It's good to be with you, City Church. I want to pray. I want to pray as we always do for uh, the preaching of God's word and that the Spirit would do what he is always pleased to do, and that is take uh, my words of a sinful, imperfect person, uh, a man of many faults, uh, and yet uh, the word goes forth from Scripture and does not return void. I also want to pray this morning because. Uh, this, there, there are just weeks in the life of any church, but there are weeks uh, certainly in the life of City Church where uh, we have the mixture of great joys and great sorrows. I mean, that, that is life. Life is that mixture of, of joy and sorrow. And so uh, one of the things I would love to do as we pray this morning is just to consider that there have been several in our body that have had a very hard week and have gone through uh, some trials and sufferings that uh, are unimaginable to a lot of us. Um, we've had people lose lives. We've had uh, people have families disrupted this week. Um, and just want to acknowledge before the Lord uh, that He is good in the midst of all that. And that even when we don't understand, even when we're tempted not to trust Him, He is trustworthy. He is good. And so we want to acknowledge that to Him. We've also had great joys as we do every week, but in a uh, particular joy that I want to bring to us, if you didn't know, is that uh, our dear Lucas and Marley Morrison had baby George this week. And so we want to praise God for new life. So George Ira Morrison uh, was born, I think, on Wednesday night, uh, and he is doing well um, with, Mark, uh, with uh, Lucas and Marley. So praise God for new life. So as we consider those things together, let us go to the Lord in prayer. Uh, Father, we, we are understanding of so little, it seems, in this life, and yet you've been pleased to reveal yourself to us through the person of Jesus Christ, his work on our behalf to bring us into your kingdom. As we heard earlier, that, that we can proclaim his name, 
and that we are found in him, united to him by you, Holy Spirit. And so we, we come to you knowing that you hear our prayers and that you are uh, moved by the things that we pray. And so we do pray this morning that you would uh, be close to those who are brokenhearted in our body, uh, that you would move forward, Spirit, with your ability to comfort, for your ability to reassure and to bring a peace. And again, the peace that's found in Christ Jesus as he guards our hearts and minds. And so to those who are hurting and who, those who are weary and are heavy laden, we pray that uh, they would find rest on your bosom, that they would lay their head upon their good shepherd. And we thank you too for new life. Thank you for George and thank you for the celebrations that have gone unspoken this morning, but surely that we can look back at our week and see how good you are to us. Just all the good gifts come from above. And so if we have, haven't had the opportunity to even recall our week and know what is worth celebrating, I pray we would even take the moment to consider what that might be and, and just shout thank you. Thank you to the Lord above. Father, I pray that you would uh, take uh, my words uh, and have less of me, so much more of you. May, may I decrease, may you increase. May the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart be pleasing before you. We love you. Bless the preaching of your words. In Christ we pray. Amen. We are in Joshua 6, a pretty well-known story. Uh, if you've been in church, if you grew up in church, this is no doubt a, a story that you might have even had uh, motions to as kids, you know, marching around. And uh, there's a lot here. Um, even before we get to this story, I, I heard from a few of you last week that uh, my, maybe your, your head exploded when we talked about a pre-existent Jesus Christ, uh, like you're thinking what in the world is going on when we talk about uh, pre-incarnate Jesus. And so if you want to talk more about that, I talked to a few of you offline during the week. Uh, if there's anything ever that, that I'm preaching or that uh, comes out of my mouth here uh, on a Sunday morning that you have questions about, please let's have that conversation when never... I want you to leave on a Sunday or uh, take this into your week and, and not have clarity about uh, what was intended in the preaching of God's Word. Uh, but yeah, last week we did. We talked about the man with a sword, and we said that was a pre-incarnate, a pre-existing Jesus Christ, because Jesus Christ is God. And because we saw this man with a sword on the eastern edge of the land of promise, uh, we said that this should remind us of another uh, image of a sword with a, a, a flaming sword and a cherubim that we found in Genesis 3. And so it should remind us of, of the fact that the sword is going to have to swing if God's people are going to go back into either the Garden of Eden, as we see in Genesis 3, but as we have the point here this morning in Joshua, with a man with a sword guarding the way into Jericho, we know that as the people go into Jericho, the sword will swing with God's perfect justice. And so we are going to see that this morning. Now, one of the, one of the reasons I even brought up last week uh, that we, we were thinking about Genesis 3 is that I'm making the argument in this part of Joshua that the author of Joshua in many ways is wanting us to think about Genesis and so again, we think about the man with the sword, and it takes us back to Genesis 3. And I think this morning we're going to hear echoes of Genesis 1 and 2. 
Now, there are going to be some very sharp distinctions and differences. So this is not exactly like Genesis 1 and 2, but just like uh, the beginning of God's story in Genesis marks the beginning of his people. Joshua 6 is the beginning of a new chapter for God's people. This is the land that he has promised them long time ago. And now we're seeing them take the land. This is a complex chapter. It's a complex chapter in redemptive history. There's some hard things in the story. There's going to be some hard things that we read here in just a minute. And this will not be the only time in the book of Joshua that we will have to try to reconcile hard things that are going on. But ultimately, this is a beautiful reckoning of God's justice and mercy. I hope that we see in the story of the fall of Jericho, God's justice and his mercy. So I want to give you the main idea, as we usually do every week. It's found on the sermon handout, the sermon sheet that has the announcements, and then a place for you to take notes. The main idea is this. God will deform what is set on sin to reform what is set on him. God will deform what is set on sin to reform what is set on him. So let's work through this passage. We have a lot to get to this morning with the whole chapter 6. But as Jason read verses 1 through 10, uh, I'm going to argue that this is God's call to worship. So you'll see that on the first blank on the notes. This is God's call to worship. What do I mean by that? Well, it's a curious uh, plan that God is laying out here in these first 10 verses. What we read is that uh, the plan is... The men of war, along with seven priests, with seven trumpets in front of, uh, front of the Ark of the Covenant, and then with the rear guard behind the Ark of the Covenant, are to march around the city once, blowing trumpets continually. And then they're, they are to do that for six days, six days in a row. And then on the seventh day, they are to march around the city seven times, blowing the trumpets And then the people are to let out a great shout, and the walls of Jericho will come tumbling down, as the song goes. And then we we didn't read verses 11 through 16, but it's basically repeating the same themes, but we actually see the people of God obeying. They've obeyed, once again, the word of the Lord through Joshua. And so the men and the priests and the ark do exactly what they were told to do. They systematically march around the city for seven days total. And then with the command from Joshua to shout at the end of day seven. Now what, what's striking about this, and this is what we've been talking about all throughout our study in Joshua, is that there, this is the day of the battle, and yet there is no mention, there is no discussion at all about any type of military strategy. Instead, what you have here in the beginning of Joshua 6 is a seven-day worship service. It's a seven-day worship service. You have God's presence with the ark. You have priests. You have trumpets. You have men walking with God. So what we've been saying all along is, is being proven yet again here in this text that the worship of Yahweh is everything. The worship of Yahweh is everything when it comes to receiving the promised land. Of course, we remember the last time the the ark shows up in the book of Joshua is just a few chapters ago when the people crossed over the Jordan River. 
They passed over on dry land. And in verse 7 here in chapter 6, when, when Joshua says to the people, go forward, that, that phrase, go forward, in Hebrew is the same as Passover, which is exactly what they did when they crossed over the Jordan River. And so the author of Joshua is wanting them to once again see the miracle that is about to happen. Just, just as the Jordan River dried up and you passed over into the promised land, God is about to do something miraculous again because the ark is here. God himself is here. He's about to do something incredible. And so I wonder if, if this is indeed a call to worship, just like Andrew read our call to worship at the beginning of our service. Do we, do we have the same anticipation of the big things that God is going to do when his people gather? I'm asking that question, and I can answer for myself. So often the answer is no. In, in, my, in my sin, in my unwillingness to enter into exactly what is happening on a Sunday morning, I don't have the same anticipation that God is going to do something big. He always is. He always is when his people gather, when faithful brothers and sisters gather in this church and all the churches across the world and all the churches over 2,000 years when they're called to worship, God is at work and God will do something big. I wonder if we might be challenged to, to think about that on a Sunday. When we're called to worship, just like the people were called to worship in Jericho with the great anticipation of what God is able to do and what God wants to do to make his name great. I want us to see that the march around Jericho for seven days is in some ways a, a callback to Genesis 1. So this is one of the ways that I can see Genesis 1 play out in this text. God created everything in the world and when he did in Genesis 1 that too was a worship service. I don't know if you've ever read the beginning of Genesis and thought, this is God's call to worship. My favorite uh, professor in seminary is Johnny Gibson, and he says that Genesis 1-1, which is, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, is the first ever call to worship. Have you ever thought about it that way? The start of the march around Jericho is another call to worship. Now, what are the differences what are the differences between what's happening here and what happens in Genesis 1? In Genesis, God hovered around a formless and void earth. And what's happening here is that God is hovering around a lawless and void Jericho. Jericho was filled with wickedness. It was filled with sin and lawlessness. And, and this day of reckoning was also long promised. For some 400 years, we saw this back in Genesis 15. God said that there would be a tipping point. There would be a tipping point for these people. That his wrath would not remain off of them forever. And so whatever we are going to observe what God is doing in this text in Joshua 6, one thing we can say for sure is that God is patient. God is patient. He's waited hundreds of years. He's desired for repentance from these people and has not happened. Even in the seven days 
of the people marching around the city of Jericho. I wondered if you even felt that when you heard Jason read the text earlier, that there's this great anticipation and yet at the same time there's this great pleading that as the people are hearing this go on outside the city that, that they would repent and turn away from their sin. God is extraordinary patience, even in these last moments, even giving seven days for the people to repent. God is patient, but his wrath will not be held forever. Now, let's read what happens next. Skip on down to verse 16. I'm going to read verses 16 to 19. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. Now, if we stop right there, we would expect what was to come next is they shout and they take the city. But notice what happens in verse 17. A little bit of a curious, almost like a parenthetical statement. So shout, for the Lord has given you the city. Verse 17, and the city... And all that, was that, that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her and her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you, keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things, you make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. I've said something else over and over again in our study of Joshua. We would not write the story this way. We wouldn't. We'd write the story, shout, and then we would see shout and them taking the city. But we have in here what I'm going to say are God's conditions. God's conditions. In fact, uh, because these verses are even here, I, I would say the author of Joshua is really wanting us to pay attention here. So they're, they're not just a parenthetical statement. They're not a throwaway verse or two and so we can get to the real action. I think there is, in many ways, uh, more importance to what's happening here in these three verses that we need to pay attention to. Maybe even more importantly than the walls of Jericho falling down themselves are these verses. Because understanding these conditions that God has given the people of Israel is going to be so critical. So again, if we think back to Genesis, think back to Genesis 2. God had conditions for Adam and Eve in Genesis 2. Do you remember what they are? God said, you can eat from any tree in the garden. Any tree, including the tree of life that's in the center of the garden. There's one tree that you are not to eat of, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so here we have conditions as it be before they move into Jericho. We see two conditions. Here are the conditions. Take and save Rahab. And the other condition is, do not take any of the things that are devoted to destruction. Do you see that? Condition number one, Rahab and her family, take them Protect them. Save them. In many ways, we could, we could argue that Rahab herself is a type of a tree of life. That she symbolizes a tree of life. We said this when we preached through chapter 2 in Joshua, that Rahab is in the line of Jesus Christ. 
life, in, life itself. And so in, in many ways, Rahab is a symbol of life. And God is saying, take that which will bring you life. Take Rahab. Save her. The con- condition number two is those things that are devoted to destruction, don't take them. Do not take of the things that I have said to leave. This is very much like the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that, said, that God said not to take from, is it not? So what we have here in these two verses is basically a, a, a warning. It's a flashing yellow light, if you will. Just like when we read that in Genesis 2, knowing what happens in Genesis 3, we can read this and we should, we should have our radar up. What's going to happen? Are they going to take these devoted things to destruction like God told them not to? And we will find out very shortly if Israel continues to obey God. God's conditions. And then the next few verses are God's conquest. Verses 20 through 25 tell us about God's conquest. So let me read those verses for us. So the people shouted. The trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat, so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword." But the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua to them, Joshua said, go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belonged to her as you swore to her. So the young man who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it. Only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab, the prostitute, and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. She lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. The walls came down. The walls came down, the people shouted, and we are told and we read that they captured the city and they devoted everything to destruction. And so here's here's the hard stuff that we're going to have to talk about. Here are the hard realities in this book of Joshua that we need to reconcile. Because you read that women and men, young and old, were destroyed. And so the question everyone has to wrestle with in this story and the ones to come in the book of Joshua How do you reconcile this type of destruction and killing with God? Our first reaction might be, why in the world would God do this? You have to remember that that Israel Israel has been been commanded uh, to have a pure worship. And so in many ways, they're going into a land that's been defiled for hundreds and hundreds of years in wicked idolatry. And so the land could not be tainted the way it was. The Canaanite idolatry needed to end, and so it did. We also have to remember exactly how heinous these sins were in the land of Canaan. There was rampant incest, adultery, child sacrifice, homosexual activity, bestiality, 
So God punishes these people to destruction for this wickedness. Now, it, it would be incredibly unloving of me. It would, be, it would be disingenuous of me to read this and talk about this and, and pretend that we still don't have questions and pretend that all of this fits into a neat little box and we understand it exactly. It would, it would be disingenuous because we know that's not true. This type of annihilation of human beings is tragic. But if there's anything that we can take away from this story is that God hates sin. And how much God hates sin. God hates sin so much. This is how much He hates it. And this is the lengths that He will go to to remove it. And that flies in the face of our modern culture that says that we, we have ultimate autonomy over our lives. We have ultimate autonomy over how we live and, and what we choose to do and what we choose to participate in. And we could do anything that we want to do and should be free of any consequences. That's, that's the water we swim in. But God will give people over to their idolatry. God will give people over to self-rule, but it will always end in ruin. People will, give, people will do what they want. They will participate in the things that they want. They will do the things that they think uh, makes them happy and brings them life, but in the end, it leads to death. And so, friends, we, we need to remember that we were all born sinners. We were all deserving of this type of punishment. Chris talked about it earlier when we read through 1 Corinthians 6. And so if we remember that we all deserve this type of punishment, that not one of us should have been spared from the sword, then our question moves from how could God destroy like this to how can anyone be saved? How can anyone be saved? Justice and mercy meet amid the rubble of Jericho. So it's justice and mercy because we read that salvation indeed has come out of the destruction. Rahab and her household are saved alive. Now, some of you might uh, have already been skeptical of uh, my tie-in to Genesis 1 and 2 so far. And maybe even in this story, one of your objections to uh, me making this comparison to Genesis 1 and 2 is that you know at the, in the beginning that God rests on the seventh day, right? He makes the world and everything in it in six days and then God rests. And so we read this story and we don't see that. We don't see on day seven what appears to be rest, what we see on day seven it appears to be a lot of activity and war and taking of life, but we also see that God is the Lord of the Sabbath. If the seventh day of rest is our Sabbath, remember what God says, that He is the Lord of the Sabbath. He says this in Matthew 12, verses 10 through 12, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they asked him, Jesus, is is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? He said to them, which, which of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? 
of how much more value is a man than a sheep. So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Rahab is the sheep that has fallen into a pit, and she was lifted out of Jericho. On the seventh day, the people shouted, the walls came down, the city was destroyed, and God's great mercy was shown. Joshua, Joshua 6 shows us the cross. It shows us the cross, it points us to the cross, which is the ultimate place in history where God's justice and mercy meet. So what we should see in this story is justice and mercy in the cross. Let's finish out the chapter. We have two more verses to go. Here's verses 26 and 27. Joshua laid an oath on them at that time, saying, Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation, and at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. Finally, we have God's curse. We have God's curse here in the final two verses of this chapter. Now, with all the references that I've had this morning to Genesis 1 and 2, all the callbacks to the story in the Garden of Eden, uh, this curse certainly does remind us that it is not exactly like that now, is it? It's not the Garden of Eden. We have a curse not to rebuild the city. In Genesis, God blesses Adam and Eve and says, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. But here we have a curse on anyone who rebuilds this city. It's a stark reminder that sin still exists. Sin is still a thing. In fact, we read this curse and it's actually fulfilled hundreds of years later under one of the bad kings of Israel, King Ahab. And so hundreds of years from now, King Ahab uh, allows a man to rebuild the city of Jericho. And you know what happens to that man? Both his sons are killed. It's fulfilled hundreds of years later. And it shows us that the curse is on anyone. It's not just on Gentiles, but Jews alike. The curse is on anyone who disregards the word of God. Now, what do we do with all of this? What do we do with all this? There's a lot here. It's a beautiful story of salvation. There's hard stories of judgment. And there's weird stories of people marching around and shouting and trumpets. What do we make of all this here in Joshua 6? One thing that I, that I hope we see is that God uh, will use weak people, but unified people, to bring down walls. The Israelites found that there was great power in the word of God being proclaimed in unison. God told them to shout, and so they did. God spoke, they obeyed. God gave them a word to say, and they said it, and the walls came down. In many ways, what the people of Israel are doing in Joshua 6 is exactly what Adam should have done in the garden. He should have shouted at the serpent and cursed the serpent. We know that Jesus, when he was taken into the wilderness to be tempted, spoke God's word of rebuke to Satan. And now we who are his people, we the church, speak. We speak God's word with one voice against sin and evil and for God's mercy and grace in Christ. 
we have the words of God to speak against sin and evil and to speak of God's mercy and blessing in Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. And so we've I've said this a few times and I'll probably say it a lot. What are we doing on Sunday? What are we doing on Sunday? When, when we gather here on a Sunday, this is unlike anything that you do during the rest of the week. When God's people gather, there is something different that is happening. This is different from your discipleship group. This is different from listening to a podcast. Those are great things. Those are needed things. Those are helpful things. Those are edifying things. But what, what is happening here on a Sunday? Well, just like this text, we have the people of God gathered. Just like the people are marching with the Ark of the Covenant on the Sabbath day, there is power in our worship. And it's not because of us. Nothing in us, nothing about us, but it's because of Him. It's because of His Word that He puts on our lips. And it brings Satan to his knees. Why do we read Scripture aloud during the service? Because there's power in God's Word to break chains. Why do we sing words of truth in unison and harmony? Because evil shudders and God is glorified. Family, do not forget what God is able to do through feeble voices. Through ordinary people. Weak people. And I, and I wonder if, if we either don't know or maybe have forgotten, and, I, and when I say that, I'm, I'm thinking of myself, but do we know what's at stake? Do we know what's at stake even at this moment? At this very moment, there, there are hearts that are walled up higher than Jericho. There are hearts right now that are huge barriers. Walls of bitterness, walls of pride, maybe, maybe walls of pure unbelief. So these hearts have, have been shutting everything out that has been said this morning. These hearts have not allowed anything in, nothing that's been said, nothing that's been sung. And if that's you, I know you hear the trumpets outside the window. It's not an accident that you're here. You see God circling around your life. So I pray that you would turn to him and live. Today, I pray that if you hear God, you see God moving. You hear the trumpets. You see God's people and the power of God's word. I pray that you would turn to him today. I pray that you would respond like Rahab. What? <laughs> I just think how incredible to consider what Rahab was, had to been thinking in these seven days as she looks out the window and sees the scarlet cord that dangles there and remembers the, the oath that was given to her and knowing God's goodness. Can you imagine what 
what she was thinking when she heard the trumpets outside of her window for seven days. Surely it wasn't terror, but great joy and anticipation. And when she heard that the great shout on the seventh day, when she heard all of Israel with one voice shout, can you imagine just the, the hope that she had in that moment? And the reassurance she had that God is a God that keeps His promises. Because by grace, her heart was set on God. She had found God by grace. And so again, God will deform what's set on sin to reform what's set on Him. And centuries later, from this story on the, on the cross, God will deform not a city, but His Son. God will deform Jesus. We read in Isaiah 52, Jesus will be marred beyond human semblance. He'll be beaten, he'll be bloodied, He'll be snuffed out. God was pleased to deform the Son in order to reform His people. And unlike Jericho, this this curse was reversed. And the blessing was to rebuild. We see at the end of Joshua 6, the curse, do not rebuild Jericho. But Jesus says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Christ was raised from death and deformity, and we who were set to be deformed, we deserved to be deformed, are now reformed in Christ. And friends, this this is the ongoing work of God in our lives. This, This is exactly what sanctification looks like, the old man, the old ways, the, the, the ways that in which some of you were that we heard in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, our sin nature has been defeated on the cross. Believer, that man is dead. And that would never have happened without the power of the cross. Because our hearts were walled up like Jericho. Our hearts were shut off to God. We would not let him in. We wouldn't. We didn't want anything to do with him. And yet God was pleased to deform that old man. That person you were before Christ came in to reform you. And so now we are no longer set on sin, but we are set on him. And so here here is my plea for us as believers in Jesus Christ. Do not rebuild your Jericho. Do not rebuild your Jericho. Do not try to rebuild that old man. Do not try to bring him out of the ashes and bring him out of the rubble. Do not rebuild your Jericho. What does that look like? Well, maybe maybe you find yourself romanticizing the past. Maybe you find yourself really allured by that old way of life. Maybe you find yourself over and over again wanting to revisit the lust of the flesh that you enjoyed whatever you wanted to do before Christ came into your life. Maybe in your suffering you feel justified to lay down a foundation of bitterness and anger. How did you suffer this week? And where were you tempted to sin? Don't, build, don't rebuild your Jericho. Put off the old self and put on Christ. Keep the old man dead. 
Keep the old man in the heap of rubble that Jesus Christ has lifted you out of. He is the one that lifted you out of the pit of destruction and reforms you into his image. And what we see in the story, what we see explicitly on the cross is that out of death comes everlasting life. See it in Rahab. We've seen it with all of us that Christ has come for us. And he is the one that took on the wrath of God that we deserved. Praise be to God. Let us pray. Father, we're just so overwhelmed by this story because in many ways we see what we deserved. We see what was coming for us apart from your intervention apart from your saving mercy and grace. And so, Father, I do pray that if there, are, if there are any who are hearing my voice right now, who have walled up their hearts and are not letting anyone or anything in, that you would help them to see that salvation has come today. And his name is Jesus. And that he will take our stubborn hearts and refashion and reform them into new hearts that love him. Apart from you, we can do nothing. So I pray you do that work, Spirit. I pray that you would soften hearts this morning. I pray that you would save. I pray that you would, uh, you, we would celebrate salvation today. You are doing this all over the world. You're doing this all over the world. You're taking dead hearts and making them alive. And we can read this story and, and be perplexed and bewildered at the slaughter and the destruction, but we know that you hate sin. You hate sin. And so help us to be a people that hate our sin as well. Help us to keep the dead man in the rubble. Help us not to rebuild our Jericho. Help us to live unto you with our entire lives. You're good, and you have good for your people. We love you. It's in Christ we pray. Amen.